Pilate. And so we've come to the place in Mark's gospel as we study verse by verse through it of the crucifixion of Christ. We'll be looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection for the weeks to come. Today we're going to be looking at some specifics of the trial that took place. But what we must consider is is that the blood that all of humanity has upon their hands. That's what we've been looking at the last couple weeks is the hands of mankind. And we saw mankind represented in various people that have been ministering to the Lord or coming up against the Lord in the last few weeks. To have blood on your hands is to be responsible for the death of another. The question is, what are you going to do with it? So kind of backing up and looking at what we've been looking at in chapter 14, we saw Mary's hands of worship. Mary's got blood on her hands, but she took ownership of it and she worshiped the Lord. Judas, he had blood on his hands, and he re- realized that he was responsible, that he had sold the Lord out. He committed suicide. Peter denied that it was Jesus' blood, but later he would come around. The religious community, they tried to wash away, but they couldn't because it was still there. And the world today, they try to wash it off, but that stain, it even remains today. Isaiah the prophet addressed this concept in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It says, When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so the, Lord, the blood of the Lord, his blood remains on the hands of mankind. But if we acknowledge that, he's faithful to forgive us. And the idea is, is that we're guilty. Christ had to be crucified because of our sins. And so we do have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon our hands. But through belief, as we get over to him, as we just saw in Isaiah, we can be made as white as snow. But if his blood remains on your hands and you refuse to acknowledge him as Savior, then eventually your own blood will be upon your head. To have blood upon your hands is to be responsible for somebody else's death. To have blood upon your head It's a picture of being responsible for your own death. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. We see throughout the scriptures the sovereignty of God, the absolute rule of God. It's how Christ was able to take our sins upon himself and to deal with them. But there's still some responsibility that lays at our footstool. We must must understand what occurred upon the cross. We must understand our guilt. We must understand our shame. We must understand how culpable we truly are. We must understand the magnitude of what God has done because of our sins and what it took to wash it away. 
And it's then and only then that we're able to partake in all that God has to offer us. Now, there is a key to understand what is to transpire in the last two chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It's here in verse 1. Once again, it says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And so really what is being fulfilled here, and it's throughout history, but in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, it says that the nations rage and they plot a vain or conceited thing. And who is it that they are raging against? They're constantly raging against God. And we see it throughout the ages. We see it back here during Jesus' time as the Jews, secular Israel, and Rome conspire against Christ. We see it in our nation today. And once again, I'd have to ask, what's the big deal? If Christianity is not true, why does our government really even care? Why does the atheist care if Christianity is not true? But they continue to conspire and plot this vain thing against the Lord. And the problem is, deep down inside, they truly know it is true. It's why they are convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Secondly, and they bound Jesus. Make no mistake about this, Jesus was not bound by their ropes, but Jesus was bound by the love that he had, not only for them, but for all of mankind. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, says, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so what we have to be reminded here at the beginning of this path that's going to lead to the cross is, again, the reality of the cross. This is God's plan from the beginning of creation, his salvation. It's offered freely to all of mankind, but it wasn't free. It was, well, it it cost the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is God freely giving himself over to be crucified for the sins of all of mankind. And so Christ came for this specific purpose. But it's not him receiving punishment from mankind that came without a doubt. But the bigger picture is, is the punishment that he received because our sins were placed upon him. Again, the Bible is very clear that death has come about because of sin. If no sin, then no death. But death entered into the equation I'm sorry, sin entered into the equation, so death entered into the equation. And we see how this plays out upon the cross. Jesus died. How did he die? He died because actuality, the the reality of the matter is, is that sin was placed upon him. And we we need to grasp that picture, that his death came about because of sin. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. And what does that show? That shows that sin couldn't keep him down that he overcame sin, and he achieved victory over sin, and in doing so, he achieved victory over death. And how does that lend into my life, into our lives? Just as truly as Christ achieved victory over sin and death, came back to life, that one day I'll come back to life, that we all will come back to life. On, On the day that we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, it's not me who's able to overcome my sins or my death, but it's God, it's Christ Jesus who is able to do that, who has done it, and it's in him we rejoice. Verse 2, Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing, seeing how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. He was amazed because it was quite obvious to all that this man's life was in his hands, and he's not given a defense. Now, in the Roman society, as far as the legal system, there were four critical elements necessary for a Roman trial to be legal. It was necessary to have, we see this reflected in ours, it was necessary to have the charges, there was to be the evidence and the examination of the evidence, there was the defense, those who were accused were able to speak for themselves, and then there would be the verdict. The charge, blasphemy, well, that's what the Jews accused him of, but that would mean nothing to Pilate. But Luke tells us there were other charges that were made, that were brought about in order to influence Pilate because in actuality, it's what the Jews are trying to do. They're trying to manipulate this man to bring their will to come to pass, to have Christ executed. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, we're told of the charges that were brought against him. It says, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow, number one, perverting the nation, Secondly, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And thirdly, saying that he Christ a king. John MacArthur said of these charges, had Jesus been guilty of any one of these charges, Pilate would have known of it and would have arrested Jesus and had him executed long ago. But really, to the contrary, what did Jesus teach? Jesus taught that we are to pay taxes, that we are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. When his admirers wanted him to be king by taken by force, Jesus prevented it. And as far as his claim to be king of the Jews, Pilate really could care less about that. That meant absolutely nothing to him. So with no charges, there's really no evidence, there's no defense necessary, and no verdict can be rendered. But again, what was Pilate's dilemma is the same dilemma that our secular government has to deal with today. It's what all society has to deal with today. What do we do with Jesus? And the government is still trying to figure that out today. What do we do with Jesus? See, whatever the decision, there's going to be consequences, and they weigh that out. If we let him go, he would have a, be a political problem that we'd have to deal with. At least that was Pilate's mindset. Today, if we allow him in society... Well, if we allow him into society, then that means that morality truly is going to be an issue. Because what has their society done? We have said that it's unconstitutional to bring God into our society. But we understand that's the influence of the enemy, and it's for the purpose of, well, our society going in the direction that it is going today. But if we completely do away with them, what about our constituents who are believers? Because there's a pretty powerful force within the church. And so that's what the politician deals with today. He decides he wants to go on the party that wants to do away with everything related to God, and it goes across both platforms. Or there's votes in the church, and so they'll allow, to a certain degree, Christ to be spoken of, prayer meetings to take place, because, again, they understand the benefit that is available to them. But there's a decision that needs to be made within a society. What are you going to do with Christ? As our society welcomed Christ in, this nation was blessed. 
but you can look at our society and the landscape today. There's so much division. We're anything but blessed. And you can lay it at the feet of our current president, this party, that party, whatever it might be, different age groups and all of that. But the fact of the matter is our nation has rejected God. And this is what a godless generation or a godless society looks like. Not completely godless, obviously, but we're headed in that direction. And we see in the book of Revelation truly what comes about from that. Now, Pontius Pilate, he was an adversary of the Jews. He was no friend of the Jews whatsoever. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, we're told that Pilate had even mingled the blood of some priest with the sacrifice. And so Pilate was a, he was a murderer. Tradition tells us that Caesar removed Pilate because of his murderous rule. Caesar was concerned about rebellions and all, and he would put people like Pontius Pilate in charge of certain areas, and their main job was to keep law and to keep order and to keep people in line. If there was somebody who was too strong-handed, Pilate would be concerned about a rebellion and having to go in there and put that down. Well, if you go in there and put it down, if you kill people, then you don't get taxes from people. And so there had to be this balance. And so if somebody went over the line, Pilate would replace him as he did eventually. Uh, Caesar would replace him as he eventually did. You see, if Jesus was guilty, though, it'd be nothing for Pilate to put him to death. But again, he has this sense of justice about him because, again, all Romans did. The wife of democracy is justice and truth. Justice and truth is whispering in the ear of democracy, and he doesn't know what to do. He knows he's trying to be played by the Jewish religious system here. He understands that this man is innocent. But again, if he lets him go, then these so much influence will stir the people up and then he's got a problem caesar won't look upon that favorably so he's got some hard decisions to be to make but then maybe there is an easy solution to this dilemma verse six now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them whomever they requested and there was one named barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels they had committed murder in the rebellion then the multitude cried aloud, uh, cried aloud and began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had hand her, handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call king of the Jews? So they cried out again, him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. It's what we do when we go to the election booth. When we vote contrary, you know, when, when we, it's election time, I encourage you, get a voter's guide. And the voter's guide simply lists out the beliefs of the candidates that are running for office. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but examine what they believe. And then take your Bible and what they believe, is it biblical? And you could say, Pastor Mike, very few of anybody what they believe is biblical. But as far as making the best decision that you possibly can, where's your heart in the matter? Because what is God blessed? Does God bless the person who is in office or does he bless the people or curse the people who put him into office? Cursing, 
Cursing is just the lack of God's participation within a society. But blessing, blessing is having the attention of God and his face shining upon a nation. And so just as truly as those people rejected Jesus and cried out for Barabbas, how often do we do that in the election booth? Because somebody has promised us finances. Somebody has promised us this great economy. Somebody has made whatever, whatever the promises that they make, and we buy into them, and we reject what God would desire, and we cry out for a Barabbas, if you will. And it's that which has led us, again, to the place that we are at as we refuse, even within the body of Christ, we refuse the blessings of God for the blessings or at least the promised blessings of a man or or of a woman. So again, what is Pilate going to do with Jesus? In Matthew 27, 19, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is a parallel account of what's going on here, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. I don't know why or exactly what God had told this woman, but God had spoken to her heart. And Pilate, Pilate is not going to be innocent in this issue as well, and so God's trying to reach out to him. So Pilate, again, he's searching for a way out. Maybe he can pawn Jesus off on Herod, and again, parallel accounts tells us he does, but Herod sends him back. Maybe if he has Jesus tortured, it will spark compassion from the crowd. He does, but they don't really care. Then it hits him again in verse 6. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. This was Pilate's way of getting on the Jews' good side because it was a Jewish custom. It was to be a symbol of the mercy of God during the Passover. So during the Passover, which time this is, they would release one person from jail. And again, it would be symbolic of how God released them from Egyptian captivity. And so Pilate's thinking, who better than Jesus? Because he remembers the triumphal entry. They were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were worshiping him as he was coming into town. There was these multitudes. He probably has heard about the miracles that Jesus had done, the healings and all. I mean, these people are going to fall all over themselves, and I'll be able to bypass the, the religious, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I'll be able to go directly to the people. But it just didn't work that way. He got an unexpected response. John, in John's account, chapter 18, verse 40 then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And it says Barabbas. In John's account, that Barabbas was a robber. Here we're told that Barabbas was a murderer. So this man, without a doubt, was a criminal. Now, the account of Barabbas is mentioned in all four Gospels. Not everything is mentioned in all four Gospels. Matter of fact, very few things are. So there must be some sort of importance that God is placing upon Barabbas. And the fact of the matter is, that which is undeniable, this man is guilty. He's guilty of what he has been accused that he has done. But now we've got Jesus who is innocent of what he has been accused of. But that's just the perfect picture. It's the perfect picture if you would put Christ on one side and you on the other. And Christ is there perfectly pure and innocent, and you're there as guilty as sin. Your sins, again, have made that scarlet stain upon you. And the only thing that will be able to wash you clean is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's where all of humanity is at this point. 
He's referred to in, in all four of these accounts as an insurrectionist, somebody who would go into society and cause problems, a murderer, a notorious prisoner, that means he was well known for his guilt, and a robber. By today's standard, I would equate Barabbas with a terrorist. He was somebody within that society that was undesirable and doing damage. Probably trying to expel Rome from Israel broke the law, and because of Pilate's reaction, he probably committed crimes against the Jews as well. This man, this man as we all are, is guilty. But the thing about Barabbas as compared to Jesus from Pilate's standpoint or even the Jews' standpoint You'll always have Barabbases, and you can deal with them with enough money, with enough troops, or enough weapons. In the world's mind, though, Jesus is the dangerous one because he's able to grasp the hearts of the people. He's able to grasp the hearts of the people. And again, that's the way it needs to be. We know, as the born-again believers in this room, we know the reality of Jesus Christ. We know the goodness of the gospel, but also of the power of the gospel. We know what God has called us to do. We've been called to go forth and to make disciples. We are called to overcome our flesh and overcome our desires, to overcome the world. And as we do, God is with us and God will enable us in this call of the gospel. And it's been working out pretty good for the past 2,000 years. And so as we continue to move forward and what God has called us to do, God will enable us in these things. And the government, those who want to control us, those who want to control our minds, those who want to control our hearts are are well aware of it. I'm not an anti-government conspiracy kind of a person, but there are certain realities that we do need to be aware of here. There are certain realities, and these things, as I just even mentioned them, we see how they play out again. The decision that was made back in New York that a baby can be murdered even minutes before it's born, even moments before it's born, that's just simply of the devil. And it's just, it grieves my heart just to even think of that. Being a father of four and a grandfather of seven and seeing those children and, and, and just how innocent they are and how black-hearted our society must be to put a child like that to death. Our president acknowledged that in the State of the Union the other day, and it's, it's because it's just so obvious that this is just not right. And so in this man, Barabbas, it's a picture of Christ's substitutionary death for a hopeless sinner. Because apart from Christ, we were all as he was, as Barabbas was. We were in prison. There was nothing he can do. He had the sentence of death upon him again, There was absolutely nothing that he could do. This man was not going to be able to overcome Rome. He was placed at their pleasure. And here, here enters in this man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would then go to the cross that probably was even prepared for this man, Barabbas. In Mark chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Barabbas needed somebody to interact in his situation, in his life. And the only one who could offer life at that point, 
as it turns out, was the Lord Jesus Christ. We all needed somebody to interact in our hopeless situation. And who was it? It was the same one. It was Jesus Christ. See, that cross that Christ died upon, it wasn't just Barabbas' cross. It was all of our cross. And now the picture there is that we should have been hung upon that cross. But the problem there is we would have had to hang upon that cross for all of eternity. There was never an opportunity that we were going to be able to to pay our debt. So now we have an interesting contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. In Barabbas, we have mankind represented. We see this even in his name. It's a compound name. Bar means son, Abbas, of a father. Barabbas, he's the son of a father. Jesus, he's the son of the father. And even in his name, it's very possible that Barabbas, he's called Barabbas, he may have been presenting himself even as the Messiah, but again, as he is in jail at that point, there's nothing he could do for himself. He needed Christ to interact upon his life. So point being, Barabbas, or all of mankind, has the essence and the nature of their father, just as Jesus has the essence and nature of his father. And I say that from time to time. What does it mean to have the essence and the nature? To have the essence is to have the looks. My grandson, Max, came over this morning. Max is just over two. He noticed some pictures that were on the wall, and so I lifted him up, and he's looking. He says, oh, Papa or Mama or Brother or whatever. And there was the pictures on there of myself and my, uh, I'm sorry, of my father and my mother. And I was looking at him the other day, and I was thinking, yeah, I could see elements of myself and my mother. I can see elements of myself and my father. Matter of fact, my mother gave us some pictures of my grandfather, her father, and my father's father, my grandparents. And I'm looking at them. Didn't see a lot of resemblance, but there was some, some areas that you could, you could just tell. And so I have the same essence of my grandparents. I have the same essence of my parents. Unfortunately, I have their nature, too. And their nature, as Sean knows, <laughs> the nature is a sinful nature. Just as truly as my grandfather was a sinner, my father was a sinner. Just as surely as my father was a sinner, I'm a sinner. And just as I'm a sinner, my daughter is a sinner. And just as surely as my daughter is a sinner, Max is a sinner as well. And the same Savior that his line of sinners needed is going to be the same Savior that will need to save his soul as well. Because why? We all share the same essence. We all kind of look alike to a degree, and we all have the same nature. But what we, what are, we're, we're adopted children. We've been adopted into this family. God, because of the great love and his grace and his mercy, he's brought us into this family. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. But now, as far as the Father in heaven, there's only one who has the essence and the nature, Jesus Christ. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God. As we see Christ, we see the Father in heaven. And he's got the same nature of absolute holiness. Again, that which Isaiah observed as he had that picture of the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. It's that which caused him to become undone. Because again, as mankind sees the absolute purity of God, we see how far we are from God. We see the true stain that is upon our soul. We see the sin that has set us apart. But Isaiah, what did he do? He submitted himself to God, and God was gracious. 
as we submitted ourselves to God, God is gracious as well. Verses 16 through 20. Then the soldiers led him away into a hall called the Peritorium, and they called together the whole garrison. It's interesting, when we went to uh, Israel, we went into the area of the Peritorium. Now, the room itself that existed in Jesus' time does not exist today. They rebuilt things over the centuries and so on and so forth. But it's very interesting that the floor still exists. And so the floor that you are standing upon when you are in Israel is the same floor that Jesus stood upon when he was being examined. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, it's made out of stone, but it's centuries old, and that stone is polished, if you will, from people walking over it. And it's just an amazing thing. I mean, you don't need to get to be there to get to heaven, but it's just, wow, that which we're reading about here that happened 2,000 years ago, I've been there. I stood there. Some of you have as well. And it's just a neat thing. That's a neat thing about Israel, is just experiencing the biblical history that is there. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Peritorium, <clears throat> and they called together the whole garrison. So they're saying, hey, we got this guy. Come on down. Verse 17, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And began to salute him, hell, king of the Jews. So they're they're mocking him, verse 19. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowed the knee and they worshipped him. They're, again, not truly worshipping him. They're, They're mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to be crucified. On the day that you go to the Peritorium, that's when you're in Jerusalem, obviously, um, you go out from there and you take the path that Jesus took to go to Golgotha, and that will be the day that you visit the area that they believe is Golgotha, and then you'll also visit the tomb of Christ, or the area of the tomb of Christ as well. Golgotha, it just makes perfect sense that it kind of hangs over the city. It's more of a bus stop today as far as what it's been made of, but the, the hill is still there. And I can imagine a cross placed upon that hill would be an example for all of the city. Well, we know it's even bigger than that. It's an examine, It's a example for all of humanity. John chapter 19, when Jesus is brought out after his scourging, Pilate says, Echo homo. It means, behold the man. What he's telling him is, look at this poor fellow. You desire the son of a man, but now look what has happened to the son of your your God. If you were to truly behold this man, you'd see a few things. A few things that others had noticed. And the main thing that stands out as you're looking at Jesus Christ, at least in the eye of your mind, and you see the scourging that has been placed upon him, the thing that we have to realize is this is the damage that sin has done to this innocent man. And there were those who had understood that. First, Judas. Judas understood his innocence. In Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Then there, were, there was Pilate's wife, again, Matthew 27, 19, have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate, Pilate said in John 18, 38, I find no fault in him at all. Herod, Herod said in Luke 23, 15, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. 
The thief upon the cross, a man who was guilty himself, said in Luke 23, 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. There was a centurion. He was more than likely the master sergeant who was to oversee the crucifixion of Christ to make sure that occurred, and then later on to make sure that he died. He said in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And then there was also the crowd that was around the foot of the cross in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And the second thing that we see when beholding Jesus, again, has to be our sin. Has to be that he stood there and he stood there willingly. He stood there and again, what kept him was that spirit of love. But as he stood there and he took all of that, he understood the magnitude of what was about to occur. Because through this death of this one who was fully man and fully God, the gates of heaven were going to be open. The price for sin would finally be paid. Because there were the saints, we saw this on Sunday morning in Hades, those who had died could not go to be with the Lord until the price for sin was paid. And so just think of this. There was all of the Old Testament saints, all of the souls that were were waiting for this moment to happen. All of the prophets who had spoken of this great event, now it's finally coming about. I would imagine the angels who desire to look into the things of the gospel had to be excited about this finally happening as well. And as this was about to come to pass, it was going to alter the course of history. So you look at Jesus, and the death is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. But we also need to look at the time frame. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Because regardless of what anybody believes about Jesus Christ, it's undeniable that that point in history changed all of history. It, It changed thousands, lives of thousands throughout, well, from that period until now, for over 2,000 years. It's the one, to me, It's the one undeniable fact of the existence of God and the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And it's my encouragement to you once more, regardless if you're saved or not or how long you're saved, you should be able to look into the mirror and see Christ or at least see the work of Christ. See your changed life and to understand and know because you know, we can look at Barabbas and talk about what a sinner he is. We can speak of the sinner that Pilate is or Herod is or the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But you know the sinner that you were. You know of the things that you have done. And it's not just, okay, well, yeah, I've lied three times and I stole here. There were some pretty ugly things that went on, especially our thoughts. But a lot of us have acted out in those thoughts. I I, I use the term us. We know who we used to be. The Apostle Paul understood this concept, and it's not going to be on the board, but in 1 Timothy, we have the the picture of of his testimony. He says in verse 12, and uh, this is of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. He's realizing that what he's able to do in ministry is because Christ has enabled him. It says, because he counted me faithful, 
putting me into the ministry. So when God looks at people, you can say he looked at the Apostle Paul and thought, wow, there's something good here, but that wasn't it. The only thing that he saw in the Apostle Paul was that this man was faithful. Matter of fact, I think we could probably express that, that this man is passionate about what he believes. Because what was Paul doing previously, he was doing the worst thing that Paul afterwards could think somebody could do. He was killing people and imprisoning them, well, imprisoning them and then killing them, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what did God see in this man? He could seize the same thing and saw the same thing in the Apostle Paul that can exist in you as well for whatever he has called you to do, just simply to be found faithful. Verse 13, although, and that's a huge word, that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formally. What were you formally? And this is how he's perceived by God, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, he says he obtained mercy. That means he was guilty, but he just didn't receive the punishment. It means he was due the punishment, but because of the grace and the mercy of God, he didn't receive it. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That means it goes out to all of us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Now, somebody argued with me and told me that that meant that the apostle Paul was better than all other sinners. But that's not what the language lends to. This means that he was the worst of all sinners. Because again, this man who had a passion to see people come to Christ, previously he had killed others because they had that passion. But God saved his soul. He saved his soul for his reasons and his purposes. And regardless of who we are, regardless of what we have done, regardless of how many times we have done it, Christ has washed us clean. Though our sins were as scarlet, we are now as white as snow. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, me at the beginning, this is at the beginning of the gospel going out, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so Paul's saying, I'm the poster child because you're all going to be the same way. You're all going to be sinners, and you ought to have the same opinion of yourself that you're the chief, not the best, but the worst of all sinners because you know. So I'll use Gene here as an example. I could set myself, well, you know what, I bet you I didn't do, I bet you I haven't done half the stuff that he's done, but he's probably sitting there thinking, oh, you don't know the, you don't know the half of it. And then I'm reminded, as God convicts me for saying such an arrogant statement of everything that I've done, and what God wants us to know that myself and Gene were brothers in the Lord. God looks upon both of us just as if we have never sinned. It doesn't matter what we have done in the past. God has washed that away. I ought not to judge him. He ought not to judge me. And even more than that, I ought to not judge myself. He ought not to judge himself. Because if we judge ourselves to condemnation, how could God ever forgive me or I'm destined to hell, I just know it, then you're making yourself more of a divine judge than God is. If God has judged me to be innocent, then I'm innocent. And God has judged the believer to be innocent. He has made the determination to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, that we, in his sight, would be as white as snow. 
However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now it says that Paul, Paul goes through, he, he states these biblical realities, the theological points, and then he kind of breaks out into a little doxology, a little worship of God. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just this little picture of praise as he's visiting who he used to be, but who he is now. And so even as Pilate asks us to consider the man, we must consider the man. And I guess the best description of Jesus, especially as he's standing there in his scourged state, is presented to us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 and 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely our, our sin is upon him and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. So again, smitten by God. The punishment is from Father, not from mankind. Smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded or he was pierced for our transgressions. Because of our willful sins, he had to pay a price. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, because he was beaten, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It wasn't so much the stripes of the cross. Again, it was the sin that was placed upon him as he was upon that cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin separates us from God. And even though Jesus was still fully God, he was fully man. He was upon that cross, and he experienced darkness for that brief time, that brief time when sin was placed upon him. He experienced the separation, even from himself. It's, can't really explain that in detail, but as he did, darkness came and death came, but soon was to become life, life for all the world, whoever would believe upon him. There will be a point in every person's existence that they will behold the man. And as they behold the man, they would do well to behold their hand and see the blood that is upon their own hands. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ had to die because we are guilty. But also see that that horrible stain, that horrible stain is washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the de sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll close with this last verse in Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone, the idea whoever ever willfully falls upon that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Today is the day we have the choice. We can cast ourselves and die to who we used to be upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, or there will come the day that that stone will grind us to powder. God's wheels of judgment they grind slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And so, as always, the choice is ours. Never take these things for granted. Matter of fact, the, need to, the knowledge of these things needs to enter into our worship. When we realize all that God has done, don't even think about it for us, although he has. Think about it. You have to internalize this. You have to make this personal. As you make this personal, it's then that you'll have that outbreak of praise. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. And I can imagine we have that physical picture and the horror that existed. 
But Lord, we also have the spiritual picture through your word and understand the horror that existed there as well. That for the very first time in all eternity past, Jesus was taking sin upon himself. Not his own sin, he was innocent, but he took our sin upon him. And Father, it's there that we see the great magnitude of the love that you have had for us. I pray, Father, that we would receive of this and that we would grasp on and that we would hold on to this. But Father, I pray if there's anybody in this room who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would just consider two things. That they would understand with the knowledge of sin comes the necessity to repent of sin. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we're faithful to repent, he's faithful to forgive. And then secondly, Christ has called, just as he called his apostles, he said, come follow me, that we would be followers as well. So Lord, I pray for every person in this room that they would examine their heart. And Lord, for those of us who are born again, I pray that this last song would truly be an opportunity for worship and praise. Lord, we just thank you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Once again, Sean announced it, but our couple's dinner is coming up. I believe it's a week from Saturday already. Is that right? A week from Saturday, yes. Um, we do need people to serve there as well. And so if you're not able to attend if, if for whatever reason, but you can show up that night, uh, I think we're having two shifts as far as people just to help Jeff. Jeff is the one who is cooking it and all just to help him. So he's not here until late hours of the night cleaning up by himself. That would be a blessing. It would be a blessing to see you attend as well. Either way, you can sign up at the information booth. God bless you guys. See you Sunday morning.
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.